So you have your Bibles open there to Romans chapter 1. I encourage you to keep them open as we uh, turn our attention to God's Word, particularly right here um, in Romans 1, in this first paragraph. For the uh, first half of this year, we have been working through the, the Gospel of, of Luke, uh, and our goal in uh, preaching through the Gospel of Luke was to set our eyes on Jesus, to really get to know Jesus as he is revealed there um, in uh, Luke's account of his life, his ministry, his work, and his death and resurrection. And there's a common question that uh, those who encounter Jesus <clears throat> in uh, the gospel had. It's, it's also a question that, that the other gospel writers uh, include in, in their accounts of uh, the responses that people had to the work and ministry of Jesus. And that question is, who is this man? Who is this man? In Luke 5, for example, while Jesus was teaching in someone's home, if you remember, a man who was a, a paralytic was lowered down through a hole in the roof into the house where Jesus was teaching. And Luke reports that in, in response to seeing the faith of the man and his friends, that he told the man who was low, lowered down there, your sins are forgiven. And then Luke then tells us the re response of uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees who began to question, and they said, who is this who speaks blasphemies? For who can forgive sins but God alone? They were looking at a man, probably a younger man than many of them, a younger man teaching in the house, they're hearing what, what he's been saying, and then they see him and hear him tell a man that his sins were forgiven. They know that only God can forgive sins. So who is this man? Who does he think he is? And it wasn't only the Pharisees and scribes who were wondering who Jesus really was. In, in Mark's gospel, we see Jesus calming a great storm at sea, and he does it with just the word, peace be still. And Mark tells us the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And Mark tells us the response of the disciples was this. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, the wonderful thing is that Jesus definitely did not leave it as uh, leave it a mystery for us to try to figure out just who he was. In fact, it seems like one of the primary goals of Jesus was to clearly reveal who he was to those who have eyes to see. Let's just consider a few of the statements that Jesus made about himself. Particularly in the Gospel of John, we find Jesus saying things like this, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me will not walk in, walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's John 8, 12. So if you really want to see things as they were meant to be, if you really want to come out of the darkness of your sin and your lostness, well, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, for I am the light. I am the only light which leads to life. Matthew 
reported that Jesus looked with compassion upon the crowds one day and was able to see their hearts, to see their anxious thoughts, to see the things that they were worried about, maybe something that you're also you know, trying to, to disguise as you come to church, all those things that, that are making you anxious. And, God, and, and Jesus said to them, as well as to us this morning in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I mean, what kind of a man talks like that? And once when the, when the, when the dark shadow of death had darkened the home of some of Jesus' closest friends, in the midst of their sadness, their fear, their grief, Jesus came to them, and he said this to them, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. John eleven twenty five and 26. And so again, our question in response to this is, who is this man? Who then is this who can seriously say things like that? When, when confronted by those who wanted to kill him, Jesus once again boldly said something about himself, which just made them even more upset with him. He said this in, Roman, er, in John 8, 8 to 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And when Jesus said, I am, he was referring to himself with the very name of God. So not, not only was he claiming to have lived prior to Abraham, which is a remarkable thing to say about yourself, but he was also clearly making the claim that he was God. In each of the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is a critical turning point in the story of Jesus where he, he confronts his disciples, again, those who had been with him and had witnessed his teaching, his healing, his mighty works, and Jesus asked them this question. Who do you say that I am? It's clear in the gospel stories that answering that question is the key to having eternal life and redemption or to still being lost and blind and heading towards the awful, devastating reality of facing a holy God in judgment still in your sins. Your answer to that question, who do you say that I am, is key to that. Who Jesus is is central to salvation. And that's almost exactly what, what we find here in these first six verses in Romans chapter one. So the theme that we have for these verses is the faith of every genuine Christian centers, that is, is focused on the person and work of one remarkable man. This fall here, uh, we've been focusing on our church's statement of faith. We've been going article by article, spending at least two weeks 
uh, in each article so far. And this week we, we, we've come to article number four, which states clearly what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we just read that statement together already. Um, but if you'd like to refer to it, 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 it should be in your, uh, in your bulletins. And as you've already seen, we, we could have turned to any number of passages in the Bible to help us focus on who Jesus is. The Gospels are, are filled with those kind of passages. In fact, all the Bible seems to tell us about who Jesus is and what he came to do. So I had any number of texts to choose from for the focus of our message this morning. But I selected this text, this text here, Romans 1, 1 through 6, primarily because it makes the point that as uh, uh, one uh, 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 older um, teacher in the church has said, the whole gospel is contained in Christ. That's the point that this is making. The whole gospel is contained in Christ. And he goes on to say, to move even a step from Christ means to withdraw oneself from the gospel. So the whole gospel is contained in Christ. So, of course, if you withdraw yourself from the gospel, you are withdrawing yourself from eternal life or from having your sins forgiven or, or really to having any, for, for, from having any hope at all. So my goal then this morning is not just to keep you from moving even a step from Christ, but rather to lead you to take many more steps closer to Christ. I want to draw you in to see him, to know him, and to be with him forever. So we're going to focus on on three main things that these verses reveal about who Christ is and what we believe about Jesus. The first is that Jesus is the Christ, Israel's promised Messiah. He is the Christ, Israel's promised Messiah. Three times in these six verses, we see the Apostle Paul use both the name of Jesus along with his title together. Look there in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. And then in verse 4, he says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then finally in verse 6, he again uses Jesus Christ. Throughout the letter to uh, the Roman believers here, Paul names Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus a total of 32 times. That, that comes out to, to exactly two, two times per chapter in the book of Romans. So obviously, th- this name is quite significant. But we need to be clear, Jesus is his name. Jesus is the name God told Joseph to give him, to name him. And Christ is his title. Jesus is his name, Christ is his title. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It's not his last name. It is his title. That's why I titled our sermon today, Jesus, the Christ, our Lord. This man, Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem and grew up in Nazareth, he is the Christ. Now, to understand what Paul meant when he referred to Jesus as the Christ, we'd have to have some understanding of the Holy Scriptures that we refer to as the Old Testament. There, we, we, we would find that God had promised his people that he would one day send a man whom he gave the title Messiah, which means anointed one. In the Old, Old, Old Testament, three types of people would undergo a special consecration or anointing where they would be set apart for a special role. They were prophets priests, and kings. They would be anointed with oil and set apart for this unique service to the Lord and to his people. Saul and David 
were both anointed kings by the prophet Samuel. Elijah anointed Elisha to be the main prophet of God who followed him for God's people. And, and each year, one particular priest would be anointed to go into the Holy of Holies to present the sacrifice of the atonement for the sins of God's people. So the prophets, priests, and kings were the three most significant roles for any of God's people because so much depended upon them. But we read over and over again of the failures of the prophets, the failures of the priests, and the failures of the kings in the Old Testament. And so God had promised that one day, there would come a prophet who would be greater than the greatest prophet. And also that God would send a king whose kingdom would never be defeated. And that he would send a priest who would make atonement for God's people once and for all. In fact, this priest would be the sacrifice, the sacrificial atonement for his people. And so we see that this one, this, this man to come would be this prophet, this priest, and this savior king. That is the promised Messiah, the anointed one. Years before the birth of Jesus, the Hebrew scriptures were translated into, into Greek. That translation called the Septuagint is what, is what um, uh, I'm sorry, that, that translation is called the Septuagint, and in that Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word for anointed one or Messiah is Christos, which we translate into English as Christ. So whenever the apostles in the New Testament refer to Jesus as the Christ, they are declaring that this man, this Jesus, this man who was raised in Nazareth is indeed the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the prophet, priest, and king that God had promised to save his people. And Paul makes that clear in verses 2 and 3 here. Look back at the, at the passage in Romans. So, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the, script, the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. So what is the significance here of the apostle stating that Jesus was descended from David is it just you know, so that we'd be more impressed with him? You know, he, has, he has one of his ancestors was a famous king, probably the most famous king in Israel's history. Is that just to you know, make us more impressed with Jesus? Perhaps you've, you've noticed that it's quite popular today to do an internet search on something like Ancestry.com to find out just who you may be related to you know, way back in your family line. Even more popular now are the, the DNA ancestry services where you just you know, swab the, the inside of your cheek with a Q-tip and then put that in, in, in some package and send it to a place like 23andMe or to Ancestry DNA, and they will send you back a report after analyzing your DNA, informing you of where all of your ancestors are from throughout the world, going, going, going way back. Some people do that in hopes of finding, you know, something cool in their ancestry. Like maybe, you know, they are the descendant of royalty, 
Like maybe, maybe their great, 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 great grandfather was the king of some village in Sweden, you know, way back when. Uh, you know, but, 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 but seriously, even if that was the case, obviously it means nothing today, right? Look at you. Look, look at where you are. Are you living in the palace? No. It doesn't mean anything today. It shouldn't impress anybody. But for Jesus and God's people, it most certainly did mean something that he was a direct descendant of King David. For God had made a covenant with King David that one of his descendants, one, he says, who who shall come from your body, he says, I will establish his kingdom and it will be a kingdom which will be established forever. So then all throughout the scriptures, the Lord keeps referring to this descendant of David, this this, this promised Savior King of God's people. And then finally, in the very first verse of the Gospel of Matthew, which introduces the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, we see that he says that he is the son of David and the son of Abraham. And Matthew then proves this by tracing the lineage of David, or the lineage of Jesus through Abraham to David to Joseph, the husband of Mary who gave birth to Jesus. So God fulfilled his covenant with David through this man, who Paul here refers to as Jesus the Christ, the anointed one. Next we see that Jesus is the man with two natures. That's there in verses three and four as well. So I'm gonna gonna take a guess that this point of doctrine, that Jesus is the man with two natures, this point of doctrine probably is not something that you think about all that much. You know, when you think of Jesus, the first thing that comes to your mind is probably not that he is dual-natured. And I understand that. Yet if anyone is to truly know who Jesus is, we must know this. You do not truly know Jesus unless you know that he is fully and completely divine and that he is fully and completely human. Jesus the Christ has a divine and a human nature. Again, look at verses 3 and 4. Concerning his son, this is Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So there, did you, did you catch that? Paul was mentioning that. Verse 3 begins with Paul declaring that this gospel of God, this good news of the salvation of God's people is all about his son. That is the son of God. This is, of course, a divine designation. Jesus is the son of God. Therefore, Jesus is God. Even those who are trying to kill Jesus knew this. In John 5, 17, Jesus gives a defense for why he does uh, a mighty work of healing on the Sabbath day, you know, the day when God's people were, were commanded to rest. And, and Jesus says to them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And in the very next verse, we read the people's response in, in, in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, or so they thought, 
but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So here's another example of Jesus being very clear as to who he was. He is the son of God. Therefore, he is equal with God. He has a divine nature. And then back to our text here in Romans 1, verse 4, it also says that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So when it says he was declared to be the Son of God, that is, that is not to be understood as, or I'm sorry, that, that, that is to be understood as he was shown to be the Son of God. He was revealed to be the Son of God. It's not like he wasn't the Son of God before that happened. He already said he was. But here at his resurrection from the dead, he was shown to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Now, other men, of, uh, of course, had been raised from the dead by God's prophets or, or, or by Jesus before that, but no other man in all of the world had ever been killed and then rose up from the dead on his own. The only way this happens is if the person of Jesus is the divine Son of God. But this verse tells us he is also fully human. Verse 3, he's also fully human. He was a human descendant of David according to the flesh. The divine Son of God became man. He took on human flesh when he was born of the Virgin Mary. He was not conceived in the natural human way, but he really was a human baby with a human nature. Luke tells us he grew up in the natural human way. He got hungry. He had to eat. He had to drink. I'm sure as he was growing up, he even bit his lip at least a few times while trying to eat, like I did yesterday. He was human. He, he, he got tired and had to sleep. He had a full range of human emotions and, and showed that at various times in, in his ministry. And most importantly for us, he bled and he died on the cross. And his human body was buried in the tomb. He then rose bodily from the dead, and his human body, his resurrected human body, ascended into heaven where he remains until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is one person with two natures. He is fully God, and he is fully man. Now, why is that so significant for us? Well, first, Jesus must be fully God, for the Bible tells us that he is the full revelation of God for us. We wouldn't really know what God is like if he hadn't come to the earth, taken on human flesh, and revealed himself to us in Jesus. Also, Jesus has to be fully God or he would not have been able to save us from our sin. His work of redemption on the cross would have been powerless to save us if he were not truly God. We have sinned against a holy God, and only someone who is also divine would be able to absorb the great punishment for all of our sins against this holy God. And the scriptures say that God alone is able to save, so Jesus had to be fully God in order to save us and forgive us from our sins. At the same time, Jesus also had to be fully human. 
He had to be fully human to be able to be our substitute on the cross for our sins. He had to be like us in every way, yet without sin, in order to fully identify with us and represent us before God on the cross. Like one author put it, only as God did Christ have the power to bear our sins and conquer them, but only as man was he qualified to do so. Very, very significant that Jesus is both fully human and fully God. And lastly, Jesus is the central focus of the gospel of God. We see this throughout these six verses here. Jesus is the focus of this passage, for it begins with Paul identifying himself as a servant or slave of Christ Jesus. He was Christ's apostle, that is, Christ's messenger. Paul speaks for Christ and represents Christ to the people he comes to to teach and serve. His work was for Christ, and he was set apart for the gospel of God, which the gospel was concerning or focused on his son, Christ, uh, God's son, Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to say in verse 4, it is through Jesus that he and all believers have received grace. That is God's undeserved favor, his gift of blessing towards people who deserve his wrath. And Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome to bring about, he says, the obedience of faith for the sake, not of his name, not for the sake of their name, but for the sake of Jesus' name among the nations. This is Paul's whole mission, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to make disciples of Christ who love the Lord and thus honor him through their willing and grateful obedience. And he has been called, like the whole church has been called, to make Christ and his gospel known to all the nations. It's really all about Jesus. So Jesus is the focus of this passage, as he is throughout the books of the New Testament, as well as the books of the entire Bible. In Luke chapter, chapter 24, after Jesus has risen from the dead, he gets together with his disciples, different disciples, two times, and he reveals to them that there were things written about him in the writings of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which make up the whole of the Old Testament. Ever since God made the promise to Adam and Eve, right after they brought sin and death into the world, the Lord promised that the seed or the offspring of the woman shall come and destroy Satan and his works. God's people had been waiting for him. They've been waiting for this offspring of the woman to come. And the New Testament begins with his arrival. Christ came, born of the woman, born of the Virgin Mary, and he accomplished the salvation of God's people, and now he will one day come again to judge the living and the dead and to usher in the forever kingdom that the Lord promised to David. It's really all about Jesus. Again, as as was said before, the whole gospel is contained in Christ. He is the one who lived the perfectly righteous life that we could never live, obeying and honoring God in every way and in everything. He then was the one who willingly laid down his life and was crucified as our substitute on the cross, dying for our sins. And he was the one who rose again from the dead to justify us before God and to grant all who follow him in faith everlasting life in his 
kingdom. That is Christ. So let's go back. Let's go back to our Lord's question that he asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? If you say, well, um, obviously from the teaching that I I, I just heard, the, the church believes that he is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Savior. And if you answer that way, you are not really answering his question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not what does the church say. Not what does our statement of faith say. Who do you say he is? He is not just a good moral teacher. He is not your cheerleader cheering you on, wishing the best for you in your life. He is definitely not just a great example of someone who gave his life for the people that he loved. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, fully God and fully man. And he is the only hope of salvation for condemned guilty sinners like you and me. So as we celebrate the Lord's table this morning, let's have who we know Jesus to be firmly set in our minds and on our hearts. Let's honor him. Let's exalt his name. Let's humble ourselves and receive his forgiving grace and thank him for every one of our sins that he died for on the cross. And if you don't yet know Christ for who he really is, I encourage you this morning to repent of your sin of unbelief. Acknowledge that, that uh, to him Acknowledge your sins to him. Acknowledge all the things that you have done in your life that have gone against him and ask him to forgive you and take you, ask him to take you as his own and to begin to live for him and serve him starting today.